0: Hello and welcome, my name's Pete Rushmore and I'm your host today of a Half Dozen Things podcast. A Half Dozen Things is a podcast for business owners and professionals just like you. Whether you're an underdog hungry for success or you're already smashing it but want to continue to level up, We are here each week for you to get insight and learning from the very best in the business. No fluff, no BS and no self-proclaimed gurus talking about how easy business or life is. Just real, raw and frank conversations. My curiosity and impatience in seeking success has encouraged me to create a Half Dozen Things podcast. I designed it to bring you simplicity and discovery back to the forefront of your lives. We're all such busy people, it's easy to overlook the simple things we could be doing to achieve wealth, success, and happiness. If you love today's podcast, please do share it, subscribe, and let all your friends know how great the podcast is. Thank you.
1: Joining Pete on a half dozen things podcast today is the owner and founder of Mind Body Consulting. Jonathan Pittam. Jonathan's committed to improving mental resilience in the workplace and feels strongly that mental health could be demedicalised. Drawing on first-hand experience of poor mental health, Jonathan brings his in-depth knowledge of nutrition and fitness, coupled with mental well-being expertise, to his training to help businesses support their people to build resilience through coping strategies and their own personal resilience toolkit. Enjoy today's episode of a half dozen things podcast.
0: Yeah, the red lights roll in. So, Jonathan, it's wonderful to have you join me on a half dozen things podcast. How are you today, mate? I'm good. I'm good. How are you? Yeah I'm really good too mate really good and I'm I'm absolutely buzzing to have you on it it's been a little while in the planning getting it getting it booked in and I remember like right at the beginning of lockdown when we started talking about it and uh, we're gonna do it so we fin- finally got onto it so um, Jonathan for for the listeners are you able to just sort of um, explain a little bit about yourself a bit about your background that sort of thing please mate?
1: Yeah, yeah. I'm a, so I'm a mental health trainer, work um, predominantly in the corporate marketplace uh, with people managers. Original background was as a, a personal trainer. I did that for, for many years and then had my own sort of challenges around my mental health, which led me to having to pay attention to the mind rather than exclusively focus on the body. And one thing led to another. And now I work predominantly
0: with managers on how to support their team's mental well-being. Fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. So you, you are a qualified PT. And yes, do you still yeah. do any physical training as
1: well? No, no, only my own, only my own, quite in, involved in boxing and boxing coaching
0: and stuff and do a lot of, you know, my own exercise, but I don't personal train anybody anymore. Nice. Okay. So you focus solely on uh, mental health training and what's your, what's your company called Jonathan? Mind Body Consulting. Brilliant. Brilliant. Thank you. And okay. So how do you, how do you find it? Do you, do you enjoy doing it? Do you like dealing with a broad range of different clients and, and what sort of challenges do you come across?
1: yeah I've, I've I've worked with I mean same what I do at the moment is is 99% with people managers but across the time I've worked with people from uh, dis- disability charities I've worked with homeless charities worked with offenders through the probation service so a massive variety of people teachers as well teaching assistants and yeah, so I think that's really put me in a good position to be able to understand people. And, and the fact that what I went through, my, my whole of my 20s and half of my 30s was a nightmare due to my own mental health issues, challenges around that. So it puts you in a position to be able to empathize when, you, when you've when you been through something. Not to say that what I've been through, what worked for me will help other people. That's not the case. But
0: it does put you in a position to empathize. Yeah, got you. And and, and that's so true is finding that balance, isn't it? And I know we've spoken before in previous encounters because we do mental health training as well which is slightly different and we are target to a slightly different audience as well but obviously when we've had conversations before one of the challenges i often find with mental health trainers or speakers that i come across they focus so heavily on their own experience and rather than really using it you you were so articulate there where you said about using it to be able to empathize but not sort of ram down other people's throats really your experience right yeah yes not not using it in a prescriptive
1: sense to say what worked for me or worked for other people it'd be a bit like saying i lost 10 stone on the atkins diet therefore everybody should use the atkins diet <laughs> we are uh, what, what how our bodies respond to diets so, you know nutrition exercise varies and how our minds respond to certain things
0: varies as well we're all completely individual that's the thing yeah perfect that, that's absolutely brilliant and when you um if you don't mind sort of sharing a little bit of history and i, I if you're happy to sort of speak about that so in your twenties and thirties, you faced some challenges. Sort of, were you able to work through those, or did you just sort of literally lock yourself up? And 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 what was your experience? Yeah, it was a case of I was. There was an incident that happened to me um,
1: when I was at university in my in my first year, and uh, it was where well, I was almost a, a, attacked by a group of people, and. Everything seemed fine initially, but then I started to notice things changing from being this very sociable person to life and soul of the party to avoiding people and feeling uncomfortable in conversations to to when it got to the extreme where the idea of even speaking to somebody would strike terror through my heart, which was weird because I was the school, the class joker. I was the class idiot. I was, you know, loads of friends. And I would say throughout my 20s, I probably didn't make any new friends. Whereas I had my university friends and my school friends, I didn't make any new contacts or anything throughout my whole of my twenties. And that
0: was all down to how I felt about people. Wow. Wow. Okay. So that had a massive impact on you then. With regards to sort of working and that sort of thing, that was a challenge as well then, I suppose.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I always explained that, that the time about when I worked, my my first job was at Coventry Building Society, my first job out of university. And I, I worked in the contact centre doing online accounts, and I used to have to walk through the call centre to get to my station every morning There there was probably about two to 300 people in there. And for me, the idea of getting stopped on the way to my station and having to have a conversation with someone in front of everyone, I used to... I wouldn't be able to get to sleep at night sometimes thinking wow. about it. Uh, driving to work in my little Austin Metro, A-Ridge, I'd be, my hands would be sweating on the steering wheel and just thinking about that, having to have a conversation. And I used to just envy the people who could stand there and just be chatting away like they didn't have a care in the world in the middle of the room. And for me, that, that was just an impossible obstacle. I couldn't imagine I'd ever be able to do that again.
0: Yeah, wow. Wow, and and that is must have been such a challenge. You know, I, I've had some experience myself from from traumatic events but I I suppose it affected me more internally um, and and I was so heavily affected internally I don't think I had it to that sort of you know I I didn't face challenges to that sort of level so I find that really really interesting that you're you're open to talk about that and with regards sort of you're obviously in a much better place now so you found you found ways to manage that and cope with that over time you know how did you find that was that like a learning experience have you used sort of different talking therapies What, what what is it that sort of really made the difference to you I think for me, I guess, as a
1: trainer in the world of learning development, I'm naturally going to be a curious person. I like to know about things. and It was a case of exploring things like mindfulness, meditation, and a lot of the stuff that was linked to my work as a personal trainer, the psychology of habit change, all that sort of thing. And the meditation, I couldn't do it at first, couldn't sit still, couldn't stop my mind going 3000 miles an hour. And But it was about persisting. And then I think when you hit rock bottom, you realize I can't just be a five-minute wander and expect these things to happen overnight. You've got to really stick with them. And it was the being able to stick with things because I hit rock bottom. If I hadn't hit rock bottom, I wouldn't have stuck with them. I would have just said, that doesn't work. I'm not going to bother, next thing. But yeah, I went on a journey of trying all sorts of things, lots of stuff, you know, from Reiki to Shiatsu massage to aromatherapy to meditation to mindfulness to to a bit of everything. And it was certain things that stuck. And CBT, Cognitive Behavioural Therapy, the one that enables you to challenge your thinking processes, that was huge for me, because I realized so many of my problems were caused by my thinking processes. So things happened to me that would happen to other people, but how I process them was in a way that's going to set me up for things getting worse you know i would catastrophize i would i would ruminate i would i'd be i'd mind read i think that oh, that happened in that scenario that person because they think this without any evidence whatsoever but i'd convince myself of it mm-hmm. so cbt and mindfulness teaching you how to be in the present moment because i was always a next 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 worry 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 future 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 mindfulness helped to, to rein that in and meditation just gave me a little gap between things happening and me reacting to them So I was able to
0: learn to respond rather than react. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, a lot of that resonates with me because I'm I'm much the same driven, driven forward all the time, future, future. And, I have to find ways to try and get myself to stay in the present and to to stay mindful with what's going on right now. You know, I totally resonate with not being able to sit still and and really struggling. I found over time with practice, you know, I get better at things. It's a bit like sport, you know, I get better and and I'm able to sort of control control myself a lot more, um, which uh, which is fantastic really and so with when you say rock bottom you, at some point you you hit that so there was an instance sort of early 20s is there at what point sort of in the journey between then and your sort of uh, in your mid-30s when when you sort of started to overcome stuff when was that the rock bottom was in my early 30s actually so my 20s i would
1: just write off and say i was deeply unhappy my 30s was when i was around the time i'd got into personal training i just worked myself into the ground it was that thing about you know we're talking about next 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 future being brilliant at to do to-do lists and having lists for your lists and i remember Mum used to say to me well why don't you you know go and see some of your friends this weekend I'd, i'd get really wound up at that question because i think doesn't she know how important it is for me to be getting stuff done all the time and i'll get i'll go and see my friends when i've got to this level in my business and this but that level always rises and I just wiped myself out to the point where I had nothing left and I remember waking up uh, one day and thinking well I don't even want to get out of bed and cancelled all my personal training clients and then that day rolled into the next day where I cancelled them put them off for a few more days and yeah, it just it just got worse and worse. To the point where I didn't want to go outside at all. And all, my only comfort at those times was my books, because I've always liked to read and study things. And that was it. So I just used that time to be looking into things. But the rock bottom was just, I thought, what's the point now? Because I feel so low. I thought I can't interact with people. I got no energy to do anything. My mind feels like a mess. What's What's the point? What's the point? I would have, at that point, I would have swapped lives with absolutely anybody, you name, if you could have put someone in front of me and said, would you swap this person in a split second? I've said, yes, their life's better than
0: mine. Wow. That's, um, that's deep. Isn't it. that is really deep. And you know, I, I can't imagine how that felt. I've, I've, I've personally never got to that point and uh, that, that must've been really, really challenging, but it's, it's amazing what you've done and, and how far you've come and that you're able to sort of share that experience and, obviously not like we say push it down other people's throats or what have you but also use that to be able to support others and for them to be able to more be more aware as well so what we'll do is we'll move on to the half dozen things so thank you for sort of sharing that as well and giving that background and and sort of really clearly articulating why the listeners to the listeners sort of why why your information and what you're sharing is so valuable as well so with regards sort of the first area we wanted to talk about mental health in the workplace so um, are you able to just Explore that a little bit more and explain sort of what what you mean by mental health in the workplace, please. Yeah, I guess it's just how we approach
1: supporting people in the workplace with mental health because with mental health issues, because we're all different, as we said before, we're all unique and we've got different lives, different ways of processing things, and things affect us in different ways. And it's about, I guess, the idea would be to to look at the workplace as a sort of microcosm of society and how people are treated better. Or could be treated better in society, which will therefore have an effect on their mental well-being. And the same with the workplace. If you look after people, if you make people feel valued, they're going to tend to feel better. Whereas if you do the opposite, you trash people and tr- just treat them like a, something to be, you know, worked into the ground. You're not going to have happy people, the people who want to feel engaged with what they do and feel loyal. So for me, workplace mental health and support and well-being in the workplace is all about just making people feel valued and actually.
0: Putting, creating the environment where that enables people to feel better yeah absolutely it's um it's so important that people feel uh welcome and and valued in in their world and, and their worldview of, of things as well in in the workplace because it makes such a difference to productivity staff retention as well so um if you don't mind sharing have you come across and, and I've got some stories, you know, where you sort of go into a business and you start to realise there's maybe some challenges with leadership and culture and that sort of stuff. I think sometimes the challenge is when when leaders bring you into a business to be able to offer some support. They're often maybe a little bit cagey around sort of how you frame that within their business and within the context of their business. So you're able to sort of explain to me what a really great workplace looks like for mental for supporting people with mental health.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm fortunate enough to work with some of those companies that do that. The flip side of that is the companies where I won't I won't mention names, but um, someone I know said they said if they went in to speak to their boss in the boss's office and said I'm struggling a bit, I'm feeling a bit overwhelmed, uh, you know, I'm struggling with mental health, their boss would laugh at them and tell them to get out. So that's you know one end where I think some people don't think that it's the it's their place to be uh, to have to care about those things but I guess if somebody's bringing their skills to your work they're bringing their time and coming to work for you if you look after them they're going to produce more anyway I think was it um who's the guy the all blacks coach who said you know take care of the people and the score takes care of itself and I think that's so true I think Sir Graham Henry wasn't it and it's so true because if you look after people they they feel engaged and they will perform And I think so Workplaces that don't see it as their responsibility or managers that think, well, I'll just pass it on to HR. What they're doing, they're missing opportunity there to build trust with that team member and to demonstrate that they are trustable to the rest of the team as well. Straight away passing something on to HR or ignoring it is going to have a detrimental effect on that manager anyway, because they're going to lose a person or they're going to lose productivity or they're going to lose the trust that their team has in them. So it's it's quite short sighted for
0: businesses to, to ignore these things yeah definitely and 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 actually it's it's so it, it's so important because people don't really leave jobs do they they leave bad managers and, and that's sort of the old adage isn't it this it's mm-hmm. of so important and people you know in my experience people do pass things back to hr or they'll, they'll pass things back to the business owner and and not really take accountability and responsibility themselves to support people now that support that is offered in the workplace needs to accommodate that person obviously it's a bit of a challenge and I come across this, particularly in, in my experience, I've come across this where I've had conversations with medical professionals who have studied mental health over a long period of time. And um, I know that they get frustrated around trainers who have got experience with, with mental health and mental health challenges going into workplaces and helping advise and coach and, and nurture and fostering sort of a great, a great culture within a, within a business based on our experience of, of working and i say our because i relate myself to you as well in that we do mental health training too um like i say and it's so it's such an important factor for a business to look at or a workplace to look at whether it's a business or whether it's third sector whether, whether it's a school etc however you know i think there's, there's certain medical professionals out there that sort of look dimly on people who feel like they're underqualified now sort of how how do you sort I know I've sort of caught you probably on the spot a little bit with that but I don't know whether you've had those conversations with people yourself and sort of what your outlook is on that well I
1: think everybody experiences life problems and our life problem life problems affect how you think and feel so let's say you're going through a divorce or you're losing your job or you're going for bankruptcy that affects your mood massively and by working through those things that, whether it's the relationship problem, the conflict at work, the bankruptcy, whatever it is, that will help you, feel, make you feel better. So I, I'm not convinced that that's necessarily the realm, a medical realm. If, you know, if you're, if you're, let's say your son or daughter comes home and says, and they're being bullied at school, and they start feeling really low and really anxious and feeling really fearful. Now, is that a, necessarily a medical thing? Is that something that can actually be resolved better by good, by a parent who intervenes or a teacher intervenes or by resolving the problem that sits at the heart of it? So in a lot of cases, I think what are classified as mental health problems are actually life problems. In most cases, you look to what's going on with someone. If someone's saying they're feeling depressed, what's happened in that person's life or what's happened to that person that's making them feel that way? Because if I go back to my example in my 20s, I know there was a connecting event. Now, I'm not saying because something happened after something, therefore it was caused by, you know, that whole, uh, is it, uh, I can't remember the name of the logical fallacy. But it doesn't necessarily mean it definitely was. But I can look back on that. And when I started to manage how I felt and thought around that situation, it helped me moving forwards. It helped me to now feel totally different. So does that mean that I am medically cured or does that mean now I just think differently about social situations? So my, my thoughts on that would be most of the time, these things we're struggling with that make us feel a certain way are because things that are happening in our lives.
0: Yeah. See, I love this. Now, I, I, knew, I knew when I prepared for the podcast that that was a question I was going to ask you because we've, in previous conversations we've had, and I know we've got a, a a very similar worldview on, on that. Um, and that, and that is that mental health is essentially it's life. It's living and things happen. And it's my podcast. So I can swear shit happens. right? <laughs> <laughs> apologies. This is going on your video, isn't it? So apologies if that's not the right audience. So you just have to bleep it out. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, and, and we have this tendency to to medicalize and label, and I I, I get really frustrated. And we're going to talk later about children and, and children's mental health, but also labeling is so important. And we we label children, we label adults, we label how we feel, and and people maybe help. It makes them feel better about things by labeling stuff. But actually, you know, like I think once we get the grasp that that shit happens and it's tough and life's tough and we go through a series of feelings and thoughts about things based on what's happened whether there's a cause and effect scenario but actually the way we behave does generate outcomes for us so can we positively affect the way people think can we positively affect the way they feel and then create positive behavior create positive outcomes by doing that? And is that actually, you know, do, do you have need do you need to have gone to university and studied for years and years and years to, to become a psychologist or a psychiatrist or, or what have you? Or can you actually, you know, personally, I feel well positioned to be able to speak to my peers around these things because I've been divorced. I've had serious debt. I've had children. I've one of my child's disabled. Um, you know, I've personally had like, post-traumatic stress challenges um, however you want to label that I suppose but you know and and i have faced face stigma because I'm a man and I've been brought up in a world by my parents who don't really understand those things and sort of had to come to all the terms with those so I can really empathize with people around that I'm not going to shove my experience down their throat but also it's so important to have a well-balanced workplace uh, that's really supportive and positive and and managers who are well-trained really understand their role in supporting other people yeah I think I think that's
1: I think humanizing rather than medicalizing in a lot of cases is the way forward because like you said a lot of these things are down to life problems and I think some of the secret sauce in helping people is something you just mentioned there you you've been through a lot of those situations so you're able to empathize with other people now you could have the best counselor or the best psychiatrist in the world but if they can't show any empathy for the person who's sat in front of them is that person going to open up and explore the the inner issues and share the inner world that could lead to resolution? I, I very much doubt it. And I was reading some research about, I think it was a guy, Professor John Reed from the University of Liverpool. He's a professor of clinical psychology, uh, now uh, University of East London now. And he talked about some research in schizophrenia, where they use CBT. And he said that actually the most important predictor of whether that interaction was successful was nothing to do with the year's experience of the counsellor. And they said it wasn't even to do with the approach of CBT, the type of form within CBT they use. It was whether the person trusted the counsellor. So if they liked and trusted them, that was the most important thing. So, you know, you could have Freud, the, you know, the, the, the originator of psychoanalysis in front of you. If you thought Freud was a bit of a plonker, you're not going to open up to him. So there's no, there's no trusting foundation there to start exploring him in a world. So I think it's the key. To all of this stuff is, is taking a humanized approach rather than medicalized approach there's we talk about negative emotions and and we get scared of our fight or flight mechanism in our body we're, we're labeling and medicalizing all of these things that are part of part and par,
0: uh, parcel of being human hundred percent and i i love i love the way that that we're able to talk and and speak about it because by doing so people are listening and they're able to reduce their own stigma. And because this is, this is so common and and stigma, you know, we've got to really break down barriers and actually with people going, you can't talk about that because you've not been to university actually doesn't help stigma at all. In fact, it just Mm. reinforces it even more because people that they're not allowed to talk about their experiences because they've not been to university. Like, it blows my brains. Anyway, uh, it's really important what you mentioned there around trust and building trust because I find that massively important and certainly having worked in environments where there's been a low level of trust and reason to really distrust uh people and and moving on to sort of your second area which is around managers and mental health which links so closely to what we've been talking about with mental health in the workplace but the manager's role in that in building trust with the member of staff Um, or or the member of their team um, and how they do that are you able to just sort of explore that a little bit more and how you help companies or managers with that yeah i think it's first of all making managers
1: realize or not so that's a really bad way to put it making managers realize uh, exploring the ideas with managers around mental health and preconceptions they might have because the the medical model we talked about a minute ago is one way of looking at these things it's not the way it's it's you know emil kreplin was the german psychiatrist pretty much is called the, the, the Kreplinian model of you know diagnosis illness all of these things he came up with something called dementia praecox which is what we now call schizophrenia so that's one way of looking at these things it's it's a way but with, with managers it's just about exploring what they currently think about these things and actually sharing other uh, possibilities with them and there's other ways of looking at things and letting them come to their own conclusions because not to say that one model is right or wrong it's here's everything here are all the ways of looking at it. which what resonates with you and why does that resonate with you why do you think that's the correct way and what you find is when managers come own conclusions they've usually come to a, a appreciate the simplicity of of the truth behind a lot of mental health stuff whereas if you look at things like the diagnostic and statistical manual it's it's a it's a i've got the edition four here the fifth one's the latest edition it's about it's about this thick so a lot of managers think initially they need to be experts in all of the jargon that's in that in that manual before they can have a conversation but when they realize you don't and you just have to be an expert in people suddenly it's like a, a light bulb goes on it's 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 almost like you know when you suddenly learn how to drive you don't have to think about you know feeding the wheel 10 to 2 and all that stuff it's just oh wow i could actually do this i've got the skills to do this so it's about helping them see that these things are a lot more simple there's a lot of rubbish out there that gets perpetuated around mental health and things like chemical imbalances that you know there's no evidence of of that whatsoever but Yeah, it's helping them to come to a clear idea that enables them to build a sort of a working model in their own mind of how they want to approach things with their team. And it's usually a a nice, simple one that they realize
0: they already have a lot of the skills to do. Absolutely. Because really, really, we're equipping ourselves with those skills by operating and living in the world that we live in and interacting with people anyway um mm. often often managers are made so because they're good technicians um you know they, they're good at what they do and then they become management and they're they're willing to take on the responsibility of of leading people and i think over time from an lnd and learning and development point of view um so i have to be careful not to use uh, too many abbreviations but yeah from a, from a learning and development point of view we um we've got a lot better at leadership development and 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 people uh, learning to be more human and be better leaders but certainly with managers like you say it's it's so important to just build trust you don't need to be a mental health expert you know Mm -hmm. your experience and 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 all all the experiences you've been through previously as 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 a technician potentially particularly if you're leading people who are doing a role that you've done before you can understand the frustrations so being able to to help managers realize that building trust and having empathy and and being able to have great conversations with people that and and really just sort of create an environment to be able to have a good good quality conversation with people because that you know there's nothing worse than you know looking over the top of a laptop at someone or accepting a phone call and just telling them that they're not important to you so you know and, and and those are the sorts of things that we focus on when 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 we're talking about mental health during training yeah, I think the thing is, because if someone is fully equipped
1: with all the latest knowledge, you know, they've di- they've digested the... Di- the, di- the DSM, by the way, is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. Let's say they've digested version five and they go out there into the world and someone approaches them, if they're a, let's say if they're a mental health first aider or a manager, and as they're listening, what they might subconsciously be doing is trying to fit this person into a certain category based on the, the, the model that they work to. So they might be listening, thinking, ah, sounds like OCD, sounds like depression, oh, oh actually, no, it sounds like social anxiety. Oh, no, it sounds like uh, schizophrenia. When actually, really what we need to be is listen to that person talking about their life and see if we can help them to move forward. So sometimes those things can actually get in the way. I think the labels can actually, they, I mean, they were created as a, as a way for um, researchers and clinicians to have a common language when they communicate their ideas with each other that's what it's for it's not for all of us but now we all say i'm stressed i'm a bit ocd i'm a bit depressed i'm i'm, I'm i've got uh, borderline personality disorder or i've got whatever it's 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 found its way into everyday language now and i think that yeah. could actually be quite problematic
0: yeah, I, I I totally agree. And you know what? You don't have to come with me on this journey now, but I'm, I'm, I'm just going to say it how it is. And I know we've had this conversation before, but mental health first aid bullshit. And <laughs> I'm just, you know, it just is how it is. And there, there's a lot of people out there that are peddling mental health first aid. And really it's just a pyramid scheme for me where Mental Health First Aid England are focusing on training trainers and charging thousands of pounds to create more mental health first aid instructors who are going out and, and selling their wares. And I, I come across it all the time with the training that we offer. And we talk about mental health in a context of a company's responsibility to make people feel safe and to protect their health in the workplace. Um, and um, Mental Health First Aid have done a fantastic marketing job from, a, from an NLP point of view. They've programmed... First aid is something that we do and something that we've always done from a physical point of view, and it's absolutely a required level of training which any workplace needs to have, Um, and, and, and we do that, and we need to have people in the workplace who are well equipped to be able to support people physically if there is an accident or there is something physically go wrong in a workplace and we've got to wait until the NHS and the ambulance and what have you turn up and professionals get on the scene so you know that's a really important part of our training but what's happened is is mental health first aid has kind of taken that use of language and made it something that we feel is mandatory in the workplace and actually what happens or your experience will be for those that go on training. And I know some people will have had a really good experience and that's fantastic, but actually you've got this, this workbook, this textbook and you'd learn lots and lots about different mental health conditions. And really it's more of an introduction to counselling, which I don't think is really a good fit for the workplace um, I don't think we need, I don't think we need people who think they're counselors labeling people without the correct qualifications to be able to do so. And really, what we need is is managers who have empathy. And they're able to mm. be, across, and they'll be able to refer people to the professionals if they need some help, they refer people to the professionals and then they fit into the, um, you know, the support network that's available locally to them. And that varies by region. But, you know, if people need to go and have a chat with their GP, then they need to go and have a chat with their GP. It's certainly not down to a member of your team to, to tell people whether they've got depression or OCD. That, mm. and that's, just, that's just my opinion um,
1: I, I think we like to label that's the thing it's we always want to have a, a reason and a label for everything and i think yeah it's it's one of the things isn't it if you yeah if someone's struggling and we we apply a label to them, it means usually we'll we'll then think oh, because of this label they should try this or we should try that and which is problematic because then we're sort of prescribing or giving advice or trying to solve someone's problems for them when in reality a lot of the time we can solve our own problems because we are the best we're the expert in our own problems because we live them. And I think a lot of the time, given someone an environment to talk out, speak out loud about, or think aloud about their their problems, usually allows them to come to solutions for themselves or, or steps forward because it's that getting it out from inside our head and saying it aloud like, oh yeah i hadn't joined those two dots but once you've said it out loud you, you suddenly start joining those dots and those dots can be completely joined as you said without any diagnosing that's really dangerous to be diagnosing ourselves and other people because you could go on google now and put in a, a diagnostic there's diagnostic surveys that will tell you if you're depressed if you actually look at them, you look at the sources of a lot of these things, they're linked to pharmaceutical companies as well. So it's not just a harmless survey saying, take our depression test. There's obvious, there's always something going on in the background. And I think it's it's a clever job's been done by a lot of these organizations, getting us diagnosing ourselves. Yeah. Luckily, drug companies, they, they can only advertise to the public in America and New Zealand. They're the only two countries where they can do it. And that, yeah. in, incidentally, America is the one country that believes that most most countries believe i think it was the top 20 largest countries believe mental health problems are due to life problems the only country out of that 20 was that believed it's not it's due to an inherent deficiency in the person's body and brain was america and that's the wow. country that has the most
0: pharmaceutical to public uh, advertising wow wow that's fascinating actually i've learned something there and um do you know what it's it's, it's really great timing because whilst we're talking about workplaces and 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 why that's so important and people's attitude to mental health in the workplace Um, and we start to talk about labeling and stuff we the third area we wanted to speak about was around children's mental health and um with with that entails this this ability for parents even to to maybe label their children and and that those challenges that we face as well so um are you able to just sort of elaborate a bit more on on sort of your perspective on on children's mental health and, and how we need to be very careful when we start discussing that?
1: yeah i mean i'm i'm not a parent so i'm definitely no expert expert on parenting and i wouldn't ever advise on anyone's parenting it's it's i guess it's a journey that everyone goes on and learns themselves through mistakes and whatever i think the the most shocking thing i came across was hearing about i think the youngest person to be diagnosed with adhd and was was two years old in america and medicated for it and that that really surprised me because i thought at that age a a child can can't even fully communicate their feelings and what's going on in their inner world and it was it was Gauge that they were i think it was that they were bipolar or or adhd by the people around them so it was what their parents thought and i think well that's kind of i think that's quite problematic because if you're telling a a, a child child's learning about the world at that at age and even you know even up to our teens and our 20s we're still learning about the world and what might be seen as an illness to, in, in one person's eyes could just be someone's boredom or someone's frustration and they're not able to communicate what's going on in, internally and I know as a, a previously really naughty child I would express my frustration by by disrupting everyone in the class and answering my mum back and and running off and punching walls and stuff like that it doesn't mean there was anything wrong in my brain it just means maybe I had certain issues that I just didn't know how to articulate or to deal with I was my, my dad died when I was 12 years old and I was quite an angry child after that but someone could have come along easily and said this child has ADHD but actually if you on closer inspection I was just a little bugger and I had certain issues that I didn't know how to communicate and I did communicate them through
0: misbehaving yeah absolutely and and I, and I see it as a parent of four children who are all very very different and behave very differently and interact with the world and learn from the world in different ways. Um, you know, one of them reads books and it, it will digest that. And another one absolutely hates it and will digest everything from YouTube, but we'll be able to recite everything. And, um, you know, and all of them get on differently at school. They've they've all got different experiences. and And also the way they interact. And this is interesting sort of as a parent looking on the way they interact with adults and other children will determine the way that they get treated by other people and all four of them get treated differently because of the way they interact with people. And, um, you know, I'm I'm conscious. I have listened back to podcasts in the past and I've sort of uh, spoken about, about my kids and, and, and and I sometimes think, well, Maybe I shouldn't be saying that. So I'll need to be fair to them for when they grow up in the future, right? Um, but, you know, there's, there's times when I've looked at, looked at them and wondered if um, if we could maybe do with some additional support on on certain things, right? But actually, you know, like you say, sometimes they're just naughty. Sometimes they just need to... You know, they'll do stuff and it's maybe because I've not been a very good parent and actually given them the opportunity to get out and really exercise and wear themselves out because that's such an important part of the energy levels um, that a child has as well. You know, and, and I think that, you know, children are growing up in a more sedate way than we we were. Um yeah particularly when we look back, when I look back at my childhood, you know, I'd be kicked out the door at like five, six and, and told to go and play through the summer holidays, but I would, you know, and I'd go and kick a ball about it. And by the time I came home, I might not have argued with my parents in the same way, but I was probably just shattered um, physically. Whereas kids that they, they don't have the level of freedom that we did, you know, and I, I say we, because <laughs> we're, we're, I suppose we're a similar age um, and, and, and you probably had a similar thing, you know, and, and we did have a level of freedom and now we're much more, you know, I'm, I'm a lot, closer on the children and and holding them back i suppose from the outside world whether that's whether that's for their benefit or not really but from interacting with other parents and seeing other parents and other children on the school run and stuff like that i see i see a great deal of children now being diagnosed very early on with adhd with various autism spectrum disorders does it benefit i think my question and it's it's a rhetorical one because there's probably sometimes there's a there's a positive and sometimes there's a negative of the support that child will get off the back of having that label or diagnosis but you know does it benefit the child does the does the child get a more supportive environment do they get more support is it offset against being treated differently to other people um, by peers, by adults, by teachers—you know—it's very, it's a very tricky thing, and I think it's quite a big decision if you push a child down uh, the way of getting a getting a label put on them at quite a young age. Mm, I think those things are generalizations.
1: I mean, I'm I'm not for any minute disputing whether you know some people dispute the idea of ADHD and those things. I'm you know that's for maybe for another time. But I, I guess it's assuming they're generalizations, and I think with a generalization is always going to be problems because there's always going to be people that that are, are different that's the thing and so if assuming that someone has a certain condition then saying they should have certain treatment for that condition i think that that maybe could lead us down a problematic path because can we support people without giving them a label let's say me jonathan who's eight years old he's an absolute pain in the backside. Do we need to attach a label to him and then start trying to work with him? Or can we just work with him? So I sometimes think the idea of the label, does it, do we need it always? Do we need it? Because then it may and uh, maybe sort of limits our creativity on how we will approach that person. It says, oh, yeah. this person has X, therefore we should do Y. Why, why, why can't we just say, let's just see what works for this person and work with them and treat them as an individual to find out what makes them tick and will help them, rather than a generalised approach that might have helped a
0: certain amount of people in the past. You know, I'm I'm no parenting expert, but I I was watching the other day. Interestingly, we were we were away with the kids, and there was one of these. super It wasn't Super Nanny; it was a different one on Channel Five. You know, a parenting expert or a child behavioural expert. Mm. And um, one of the things that I've witnessed a lot around the school run. You know, the thing is, is we probably don't educate ourselves well enough on, on language and how important language is in the way we communicate with each other, even with children. And, um, we, when we talk about labeling and saying to a child, you're naughty, Mm. well, they've demonstrated potentially a naughty behavior. It doesn't mean that the child naughty, but it's so easy for a parent to be able to turn around and tell a child that they're naughty, which Mm. then a child then, reflects on and, and and becomes an almost it's a self-realization against what was originally probably just a bad behavior and just needs lay saying well that what you've just done is naughty and this is why children can actually understand that when you communicate with them in that way Yeah, Yeah. because
1: I think the thing is with there's a difference between telling a child they are naughty and they've done something naughty. I think that's a really good observation because one of them, I guess you could feel if someone says you are a naughty child, that's almost shaming them. And it's it's saying something about their character. Whereas if you've just done something naughty, it's about an action they've done. And that's yeah, they might feel guilty about it, but that'll probably help them. Uh, remedy their behaviour in the future. If they're, let's say you've pushed your 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 sister over or something like that, then yeah, you've pushed your sister over is different from you're a bad brother or yeah. you're a you're a naughty naughty son because one of them is about your person, one of them is about something you've done. So I think it's it's shame versus guilting. And I think yeah, I mean I know I had a lot of it from parents when I was younger, and and it's not to criticise them because we parent how we were parented, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. and the comments stick with you. Cause I can think of things from parents, things from teachers, the negative stuff sticks. Yeah, and I absolutely. think when you're a kid, you believe it from the people you trust. If the, if the two people in the world you trust most tell you, you're, you're this, you're useless, you're naughty, horrible. Guess what? You'll probably grow up thinking you are that. And then you might start cause you believe it. You might start acting yeah.
0: that way as well. Definitely. You know, how, 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 how challenging can that be for a child to go? You're too shy. The child yeah. might not be shy at all, but the parent or the adult has observed a shy behavior. That is all, just a one off. Rather than going, oh, it's strange, it was very unusual that I noticed that you were shy on that occasion because normally you're very confident and all of a sudden you know it's it's interesting what self-dialogue that can then create by going you're shy and going Mm. oh someone's you know someone's observed that i'm shy and you know all of a sudden that that can create a behavior and a continued behavior over time so Mm. um yeah yeah it's it's challenging but yeah the the the, going back to the, the the tv program i was watching which was really sort of what the what the expert was doing was so straightforward you know the the, the, the mother of this daughter she was obviously she was struggling on her own and and, and I absolutely respect that, that that can be really challenging particularly if you get no respite and you know you've not got anyone to support you in that role. Um, but she was being very, you know, all this daughter was really hearing and the the, the mum had dropped into this sort of negative cycle of no, 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 you know, no, you can't do that and no, you can't do that and what have you. And actually just by almost just catering that behaviour a little bit more to the child, for example, they're going to a shop and, and the daughter would be like straight into the kids' suites and this and that and the other and all she heard was no, rather than actually you know, let's occupy, let's distract, occupy, you know, kids need occupying, they need distracting and, and, and what have you. And, you know, like I say, I'm no parenting expert, but it's fairly common sense, I would have thought. But then there's no, you know, who's teaching, who's teaching this? I don't know. Is there even such thing as a parent expert? There's almost, that's almost like a, a happiness expert <laughs> or
1: something. I don't know. There's There's people that will claim to be, but actually, I guess, children are all different aren't they so yeah, right. just because someone's expert that's like being an expert in fixing vw campers doesn't make you a
0: car <laughs> expert does it just makes you an expert with that sort of that sort of thing absolutely anyway let's veer back let's cut let's roll it back to mental health so on uh the fourth area talk about mental health conversations so this is something i get asked regularly and i'm sure you do too obviously the statistics are out there particularly around men's suicide and that sort of thing and how important it is and, you know i've heard people who people have asked me in the classroom before can actually ask someone if they feel suicidal. And and I've always said, well, you're not gonna make them go and commit suicide by asking them. So go and you know, ask them, but actually like disrupt someone's brainwave and, and, and make them think about those things and what and what's going on. So yeah, explain to me a bit more sort of what what you perceive a mental health conversation to be and, and sort of how you guide people to be able to create a great environment to have have a really positive one as well.
1: Yeah, I guess my approach to the conversations, I call them mental health conversations, but that's more of a headline to just uh, to grab attention of what we're talking about. Essentially, they're just life conversations. A conversation about someone's mental health is nine times out of ten. It's about what's happening in their life, really, that's affecting their mental health. So I always aim to drop the labels. Why, you know, if, if someone says to you, sat down with you and says, I'm, I'm schizophrenic, you might be thinking, oh, blimey, what do I say next? Or I don't want to offend the person. or I don't want to look uh, like I don't know what I'm talking about. So I better uh, just change the subject. Whereas if they said to you, I, I hear voices and I, uh, I, I, you know, have a few delusional thoughts, then that, that gives you material for conversation then where schizophrenia that word suddenly stops the conversation dead and it's that very awkward moment whereas hearing voices okay let's talk about it what, what are these voices here uh, uh, when do you hear these voices it, whose voice is it you know it, it's actually it's a cut starting point for conversation so it's really just mental health conversations a good one is two people or more than two people talking about life That's all it is. Life hits all of us. And no one needs to be ashamed about talking about life problems because the person you're sat with, you can guarantee they've had them as well. And you might even be lucky enough that they've they've experienced a similar emotion to what you're going through and they might share their experience of it because they don't need to have experienced the same relationship breakdown or bankruptcy. That might feel a bit too contrived. But if they talk about a time when they felt fearful, a time when they've been sad as well, by doing that, when you share a similar emotion, it shows the other person, oh, wait a minute, It's safe for me to do that as well. Then if Pete's talked about a time he felt really sad and vulnerable or fearful about something, he's done it. Therefore I can do it. And I always think it's like asking someone to jump from the high board at the sports center at the pool. Why would, why the hell is someone going to jump off that high board while you're stood at the bottom saying, go on, go on, jump, you know? And they think, well, I might hit my shins on the bottom. I might belly flop and get laughed at like an idiot. They might be recording it on YouTube. But if that person says, would you not? I want you to jump from the high board, but I'm going to come up and stand next to you and I'm going to jump first to show you that it's safe. And by that, I mean, they're going to give a bit of themselves first. It shows you that it's safe. And then you can gradually go up to the next board each together. And that's what I think makes a really good conversation. It's it's showing a bit of your own vulnerability because that shows the other person it's safe to do so. You disclose and they'll disclose. If you sit there being all perfect, why why would they dare... Expose themselves like that because there's so many risks to doing that or
0: perceived risk. Why would they do it unless you do it first? Yeah, absolutely. And I think um I think they're so you know letting down that front and letting down that guard to be able to have a conversation is such an important part of it. You know, I, I go networking and I'm sure you do too. And there's there's so many people who are so busy and they've got so much work on them. Sometimes <laughs> I'm like I'm like you know like let's just cut the BS right like. If we all had loads of work, we wouldn't be out networking trying to get more business. We all want more business, so let's just cut cut the crap and get to the (laughs) the real stuff, right? Yeah. Um, And and I resonate so much more with people who can cut the BS and just have a real conversation, have a frank conversation about life, Um, like you say, you know. And and I totally agree. You know, if you show that level of empathy and you you go on the journey with somebody i've heard other people you know sort of peel back the onion you know you've got all these different layers and actually you know you can you can sort of really get a much better level of conversation with people and i guess this ties into our fifth area which is around stigma as well because you know essentially a lot of it's a conversation is a lot about giving isn't it how much are you willing to give of yourself um Mm -hmm. to someone else to be able to to sort of really receive back and to be able to help people too Mm, I think yeah I think with stigma there's there's how
1: society views people and I guess when we talk about mental health stigma mental health stigma is stigma stigma it's all whether it's about racial stigma disability mental health it's all kind of comes down to a similar thing whether you've got a visible stigma or an invisible stigma and you know let's say for someone who recently has a change um, uh, there's a recent disability or something how that person thinks about how they're going to how will i tell everyone how am i going to let people know about this how am i what are they going to think of me how do i you know how do i disguise it do i need to disguise it there's so much going on that person's head that that gets in the way of them just leading and leading leading a normal life luckily when it's do with mental health problems these things are invisible you can for the most part if you want to you don't need to let anybody know that's the thing let's say you're feeling really down about something you might, you don't it's not as obvious as let's say if you someone's been scarred recently they you know they have that's obvious everywhere they go time they walk into a room people will know ah oh, look jonathan's got a scar whereas if i walked into a room and i was depressed people won't know unless i tell them or somebody else tells them for the for the most part anyway so it's there's self stigma and
0: there's societal stigma as well yeah, absolutely. And um with with regards sort of having a having a having a great sort of conversation and, and trying to break stigma down. So okay, what would you what would your advice be on um someone who doesn't feel very confident because it's you know, I guess it's okay for us to sit here and know we're obviously both quite comfortable to talk about mental health openly and talk about our own mental health as well which is great that we've got the level of confidence to do that but i guess there'll be people who may be listening going what happens if i'm not that comfort confident or managers out there who you know they've been put into a position and they they want that additional responsibility and they want the pay that comes with it and all that other stuff but actually do you know what i don't really feel very confident about this you know they were maybe brought up Um, with some stigma around them and they're trying to break down those barriers, but they're just too scared of saying the wrong thing. Um, Mm. How would you, how would you sort of reassure those people who don't really maybe have the confidence to sort of get someone else to open up or, or even to Mm. open up themselves as well? I think that, that again, it goes back to dropping the labels. If
1: most people who are uncomfortable with a mental health conversation probably wouldn't be uncomfortable with a life conversation, and so, because we've all had them, we've all, whether there's, you've grown up believing that, you know, you've watched One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, or these, or all the media that talks about the shootings and the mentions of a person's mental health, even if you do have the idea in your mind that people who are, have mental health problems are dangerous, they're unpredictable, or whatever it is, it, when you're having a mental conversation about someone's life, that none of that really matters it's, you know, cause underlying a lot of things could be a relationship breakdown, bankruptcy, you know, job insecurity, whatever it is, or poor relationship with a family that those things aren't, they're not difficult subjects or intimidating subjects because you don't need any expertise. You just need to have been a person because you, you'll either know someone who's been through something or you might've been through it yourself and you're just there to listen. Because I think when we talk about technicians, you know, that whole thing, people who are good at solving problems and get promoted to people management tend to want to fix people. And that's where the intimidation comes, because they might think, well, I've got to sit down with Pete and talk to him about his mental health, but I don't know all the, the technical terminology, so I probably won't be able to f- solve his problem and fix him. But you, because the thing is, you don't need to be able to do that. It's sitting with the person, creating the situation where they can fix themselves you know, or well, they can resolve their problems. So you don't need to have all that expertise. And I, I use the analogy of, you know, curling that Olympic sport that no one watches, you know, where they throw the, the, the stone down the ice and you've got the two, the, the sweepers in front, you know, they, their, their job is to remove the friction from in front of the stone. Cause it's the friction that slows down the stone or takes it off course. And I think a good sweeper is like a good someone who's providing support like a good people manager they're not doing anything to the stone they're not touching it and changing its direction they're just creating the conditions for the stone to get where it wants to get to that's all it is so it's actually a very hands-off approach almost it's it's an indirect way i guess if you're talking strategy it's an indirect approach rather than a direct approach i love that analogy i'm
0: stealing that (laughs) (laughs) i'm stealing that i love that love that so much uh listeners are definitely going to be hearing that again okay so (laughs) um i I guess we'll we'll round off to the half dozen thing which is the future of mental health which was the sort of sixth area that we were going to talk about on this mental health special so how where do you see where do you see what is the future of mental health jonathan
1: oh there's i guess a couple of ways there's way i would like it to go and there's ways i think it might going and i'm i'm my 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 suspicion is although and this is the way i hope it doesn't go is that we continue to medicalize normal responses to human life to to life you know calling our emotions negative and fearing this you know this fight or flight mechanism we have in our body and being terrified every time it goes off because our boss puts a pile of work on our desk which it definitely doesn't by the way and so going down this really medicalizing route to the point where we're terrified of our emotions and discomfort because It ties into what you said about kids being, not being allowed to experience discomfort. I think we, discomfort is a great teacher. You know, we have to go out and experience skin. It's like exposing your immune system to germs. It strengthens it. If we don't ever experience anything that's uncomfortable, then how do we learn? There's so much mess, so many messages in in pain and and grief, and that they're a normal part of life. So I hope we don't go down the route of medicalizing them to the point where we try and um I don't know take a tablet to get rid of everything that we that we find uncomfortable. Where I'd like to see it go, and I have high hopes for this, is that we we focus more on connection, human connection with each other, and being able to. And same for society. This workplace is just a microcosm, isn't it? So looking after how we I guess how we treat each other which sounds a bit high you know a bit lofty but what I mean is connecting with each other more speaking to each other and asking people how they are and having conversations with them where we just engage with each other's life that I think would be a, a better way to manage it just like it would be in society whereas There's a lot of injustices in society that affect people's mental well-being, just as there can be injustices in the workplace. And I think it's focusing on those things, the operational things in a business or the societal things, structural things is far more effective than saying to someone that their life, they're feeling this way because there's something wrong in their brain rather than they're feeling this way because there's something wrong in their life. So, you know, asking the question, not, not what's wrong with that person, just, you know, what's happened to that person in their life. I think that's the way I would like to see it go. So humanized rather than medicalized
0: and, and focusing on connection. Yeah. Love that. Love that, Jonathan. Great, great outlook as well. And great aspiration as well. I love I, that really resonated the high hopes. I love that positivity. Um, very, very optimistic about, about how, how things going to be, but I, I do worry similarly to you um, that, we feel like um, there's this tendency to want to fix everything and make everything better and Mm. label stuff and pigeonhole it and, and And avoiding
1: discomfort all the time at every opportunity, as if, as if there's not a lesson to be learned from, from pain and discomfort in life. There's, you know, most great poetry and songs, beautiful songs of poetry are based on pain and discomfort. It's the lesson that we extract from them. That's the important thing.
0: Yeah, definitely. Do you think? Um, okay, so just just real briefly, because we are really starting to run out of time, and I want to give you the opportunity to really introduce yourself to to the listeners as well, or uh, at the end. So, just just real quickly, with um, with with sort of that and the future, what do you feel is? Oh man. My question's gone. As I said that, I had a really, really good question. What did you just say? Gone. Just backtrack a little bit. What did it, you say? It's just about, about humanizing rather than
1: medicalizing and not coming, having the idea that we need to avoid all discomfort because
0: there's so much to be learned from discomfort. And, 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 and that was the question. So, with all my other BS, what, how do we help people to learn how to manage and Learn from and deal with their discomfort, rather than trying to avoid it, which I think is the challenge that we perhaps potentially face. I think storytelling is a great thing, and even
1: doing having conversation like this. But stories, because if you imagine if you read it, watch a film, or read a great book, there's always some discomfort and adversity in there that enables the character, the the protagonist, to grow. They always grow as a result of the pain. They don't, you know, they, the story doesn't start out with a person wakes up and there's, there's a letter on their doorstep saying you've just won a million pounds. The person has to go through struggle and pain and adversity and learn something new about themselves. And then they grow. And as a result of that, they change. Whereas if you take away the pain, the adversity, the discomfort, you've ruined all of literature, you've ruined the arts completely by taking away and just sanitizing life. So I think it's showing people examples through storytelling of people that have been through struggle and have grown as a result of it and used it to not only improve their own life, but improve the lives of others.
0: Love that, because that's massively... That is. That's resonated so much with a quote from a woman called Mandy Hale. And I've just Googled it whilst you were talking because it resonated with me when I heard the quote, which is trust the weight, embrace uncertainty, and enjoy the beauty of becoming. When nothing is certain, anything is possible. And it's it's kind of reframing that, you know, because all we want, all we keep desiring is certainty all the time and and wanting everything mapped out and wanting control and and actually part of being human is being able to sort of just just relinquish that control and and, and deal with pain and grief and like you say all the beautiful artistry around us has all come from that place hasn't it
1: yeah, I think that's it. Out of pain com- comes a lot. I know if I hadn't experienced what I went through in my 20s and 30s, I wouldn't have an interest in doing what I do now and working with people to help them. I wouldn't, I wouldn't know how to. I wouldn't want to. I, I probably was quite self-absorbed until that point as well. And it's only that that struggle, that dark point, that's made me, enabled me to look into certain things and, and do the work I do now. So I'm a completely different person as a result
0: of all those years of not even wanting to be here. But I wouldn't change it for the world. Amazing that amazing stuff right then we are literally i've got one minute for you to just introduce yourself and where people can find you obviously you've introduced yourself but explain where people can find you and stuff like that jonathan
1: yeah thanks Pete. yeah if anyone wants to see some more of this stuff i've done i've got a youtube channel so if you just search for jonathan pittum that's p-i-t-t-a-m on youtube and check out some of other- it videos they're most for for people managers to support them around this sort of time and i blog a fair bit on linkedin and i'm on mindbodyconsulting.co.uk but yeah just reach out i'm always happy to chat and share ideas with with people because i love talking about this stuff so yeah please just engage and we'll
0: we'll start a conversation really appreciate it jonathan and and if if people are watching this on jonathan's channel Uh, The podcast is A Half Dozen Things Podcast. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed it and I hope my listeners have enjoyed it as well. Do subscribe and leave us a review and give us feedback. Send me and Jonathan a message ask us anything you like really and uh you know we can always re-record another episode if there's anything you really want to hear about we we can really set that up and you know it'd be great to have have that feedback if anyone's interested so um yeah please do subscribe share it with your friends and um yeah catch you again next week thank you so much for joining me jonathan i really really appreciate it you're gonna starve me thank you i really hope you loved today's episode and if you did please make sure you subscribe and listen out for future episodes too please do share it across your social media channels. We hope to reach more and help more people. If you want to find out more about me, my name's Pete Rushmore. You'll find me across any social media channel and my business flagship partners and we're your partners in success across your business. Thank you. See you again soon.